Chapter, you can settle in about 16. I'm going to dip back to uh, 14.4 for just a second. Samson was the person we were looking at last week. We just got into a little bit of his turbulent uh, life and the many things that were going on. But Samson presents uh, something that I think is super important for us to grab a hold of, super important for us to, to get an understanding of, because Samson lived not only in a time of captivity, which we're living in a time of captivity. Uh, we're in a place like Samson where they had some freedom. Israel had freedom. Judah had freedom. But that freedom was limited. The overwhelming dominion was of a satanic, godless culture of the Philistines who pretty much would just leave the Judeans, Judeans and the Israelites alone as long as they didn't interfere with the Philistines' economy. And much of what we see in America today is the same. Christians are okay until the point that they become a threat to our economy. They become a threat to our way of life or our culture. They become a threat to the acceptance of whatever the world wants to do. And if we don't immediately as Christians embrace and compromise what the world is working on, then we're uh, bigots and we're racist and we're all sorts of names. This is a really an interesting time for me because it's a time for me to evaluate the people who may well be the ones turning us in. See, we think we have freedom. We think we have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all those things enumerated in the uh, first 10 uh, of the Bill of Rights. We think we have those things. The reality is those have been eroded and those have been diminished over time for quite some time now. Uh, when murder became a legal option for infants before birth, the 1963 court, when God was removed from the schools by the Supreme Court in 1963, began an era where God has been moved out of everywhere, out of the workplace, out of this, out of that. We uh, see a time where if you were in Afghanistan right now, the Taliban's coming back to Tabul, uh, Kabul, excuse me, and uh, they already know who, they've sent letters ahead to the home church pastors, Christian pastors that were in Afghanistan in that city, and they told them, we know who you are, we know what you've been doing, and we're coming back, and you're about done. They've already told them. Their freedom, they didn't have much to begin with, but their freedom's gone. That may soon be the way it is here. If we don't preach the message of the state, that's what happened in Germany back before World War II, is the government said, hey, you're all good. You can have churches. In fact, we have the national religion of Germany is the Methodist church, but you'll do it our way. And then pretty soon the cross was replaced with pictures of the Fuhrer. Pretty soon, if you didn't line up with their ideals to get rid of the Jewish population, then you were removed as well. We see there were martyrs in Germany. They stood for the cause of Christ. They stood for the word of God. So Samson presents us an opportunity to learn in a time of captivity what it means to be consecrated and dedicated to God's work. From Samson's earliest moments of life, even before he was born, before he was conceived, he was to, his parents were told that he was to be consecrated to God. He was to be dedicated to God's work because God had heard the oppression of the Israelites by the Philistines. God was going to take care of that situation. God was going to fix it. And Samson was the man that he chose. Now, last week, we learned a little bit about Samson and his wife, his first wife. Well, the wife he had that he was in the process of getting married to that didn't work out so well. Remember that? Was that a good choice Samson made? No. Yeah, thank you. I was waiting up for you. I was like, were you all here last week or what? Was I just talking to the wind? You weren't here. You got out last week. You're okay. You, you, you get an excuse. No, no, no. It was his first wife. She's never named. She's a Philistine gal. And he sees her and he tells mom and dad. He says, give me that girl. Mom and dad are like, whoa, we raised you to be a Nazarite. Uh, you're dedicated to God. Uh, why can't you find a girl in Israel? Find a Judean. Find somebody over here. Samson said, I like her. <laughs> Bring her. And told mom and dad, go get the girl. Wedding feast went on. We saw all that last week. 
The riddle happens, the young lion, the honey in the lion, the riddle he poses. Soon as these dudes saw Samson, I love this part because he hasn't done anything heroic that anybody has seen. He killed a lion with his bare hands en route to the girl's house. He comes back from the girl's house, finds honey inside the lion's carcass. He pulls some out, gives some to his parents, eats some himself. And nobody knows. But the moment he shows up at the seven-day wedding feast, the moment he shows up there, they see him and they're like, uh-oh, uh, we need 30 people that are going to go stand and watch him, 30 Philistines to watch him, because this dude had an imposing figure. It doesn't describe it. It doesn't, you know, I use, um, <laughs> I use physical characteristics all the time. I asked the dispatch, I said, can you tell me about this person? Uh, give me some characteristics. And they'll say, oh yeah, he's 5'2", 120 pounds. Uh, brown over blue. Your brown hair over blue eyes. You know, And they give us that little bit so we can compare and see if that's the physical characteristic of the person we're talking to. Uh, we don't get that in Samson's story. We just get that we know he never shaved his head until we get to today. We find out what happens. He was dedicated to God. He didn't eat anything off the grapevine, didn't drink any wine. He didn't stick around the dead. And uh, he dedicated, his life was entirely from childbirth, dedicated as a Nazarite to God, to serve God. And we know God had a plan for him because we found that in verse four. Uh, Samson, for his fault, picking this uh, Philistine, God knew he was going to do that. God's using it for his good. It's not really good for the Philistines it's not good for the 30 people in Escalon that lost their lives so Samson could pay off the riddle when his uh, wife-to-be uh, wormed it out of him because she was threatened with death by the other people in the wedding party. So he told his new wife-to-be, he said, okay, here's the answer to the riddle. And so she told the other people, so Samson lost the riddle. He was supposed to provide 30 changes of clothing. So did he go buy 30 changes of clothing? What did he do? He went right over to Escalon, another town, and he grabbed 30 dudes and he killed them, took their clothes, brought them back, said, here you go, I'm paying my debt. And then, Jesse liked this part last week, then he went and caught, think of this, imagine this, we were just sitting around, our mind was befuddled. He caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together, he put a torch in between in the knot, and he lit it on fire and he let them go, and they just went helter-skelter all over the place, burned down all the crops. So the Philistines came back and killed his wife-to-be and her father. So everybody loses here, except for who? God. Because it was for God's glory. It was God's plan. It was God removing the oppression of the Philistines. It's not Samson. I mean, he did a lot of stuff there. He's a, he's a pretty tough dude. But Samson's not the focus of the entire story. We have to see God had a plan that was carried out even through the failure of man, even through the lack of character of man. God will be glorified. God will be honored. Are we perfect? Are we the people that can do everything just right? We're out there and we're the shining example of humanity that God's going to choose to do his work. No, we're people with faults and flaws and everything else. But we can learn from Samson it is the focus that we need to keep in life because for all our faults and flaws, God can use us. For all of our history, for all of our disasters, for all the trouble we've been through and the scars it's left, God can use us to do what he wants done. And it will be to his glory. What will happen in the end? 14.4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he, God, was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines for at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. God was removing the dominion of the enemy, even through the flawed character of Samson. A man who was to be dedicated, completely consecrated to God's work. 
So the result of that, uh, 30 dead in Escalon. He loses his wife that he wanted. Um, he gets angry, burns all the fields, kills 300 foxes, I imagine. Uh, 3,000 dudes from Judah show up and say, dude, you're causing us trouble with the government. Why can't you just be a good Christian and keep your mouth shut and stay in your little huddles? Stay in your little social group. Just go hide somewhere. Talk about your own Jesus stuff by yourself. Why do you have to come out and proclaim it in public? Why do you need to tell other people about Jesus? Why do you pray in Jesus' name? Why Just go back in your little huts and hide. 3,000 guys from Judah, his own people, came over and said, Dude, we're going to turn you in. We're taking you. We're going to arrest you right now. He says, okay. He says, just don't kill me yourselves. He said, go ahead. Get some new ropes. Why don't you get new ropes? Make yourself happy. Here, go ahead. Tie, tie them on. They tie them all up. They think they're doing pretty good. 3,000 people escorting one dude. Was he an impressive dude in the physical sense? I think so. 3,000 Judeans bring him over to the Philistines and say, here you go. The thousand receiving Philistines that were there go, oh, check this out. We got their champion. We got their dude. We got the guy. He's right here. Well, Samson, in the spirit of the Lord, came mightily upon him, it tells us, and he just flexes a little bit. Ropes fall off. They break. He walks over, grabs the fresh jawbone. We talked about that last week of an ass or a donkey. And he proceeds to lay a thousand Philistines down on the ground. You think, man, what kind of tool is that? What kind of weapon is that against armor, against helmets, against swords, against spears? Well, there's, there's nothing here. It just says a thousand of them died. Samson cleaned house. And then we saw some more of his character flaw. Is Samson then went over and he was a little thirsty. He says, man, I need something to drink. I'm, I'm going to die of thirst. So God has to do another miracle. God sustains them. See, it's about God. It's not about us. It's not about Samson. Samson of God was unstoppable. Samson of God was unconquerable. Samson was the only one apart from Isaac's birth who was foretold to his parents in the Old Testament. He was the only one that an angel came and this was the angel of the Lord. This was Christ pre-incarnate. Came to his parents and said, you're going to have a son. He's going to be dedicated to God. He's the only one that's recorded. You get to the gospel, we're foretold John the Baptist. We're foretold Jesus. But in the Old Testament, this is the only one. Angel shows up just like he did to Abraham. Says, hey, you're going to have a son. That was Jesus, Christ, Christ incarnate. Came to his tent. Said, Sarah's going to be pregnant. Sarah's laughing in the kitchen. You remember that? So they share something. There's a uniqueness of God's choosing for him. Of God, he was unstoppable, unconquerable, the only one foretold. He was judgment to a godless nation of Philistines. He was God's choice. And he was marked for his consecration to God. He was visually different. Never cut his hair ever. He must have looked kind of, I mean, I don't know, Fabio. Or I don't know if they had hair product. Uh, if they, you know, he had straighteners. I don't know if he wove it up. I don't know what he did. But I see people with long, long hair sometimes. Most of the time it's got bugs growing in it and stuff. You know, they, they get, what's that? When they, dreadlocks. You know, they got, that, I've had to take a couple folks that got dreadlocks into the hotel in Oroville with the bars on the windows. And I take them in there and you stand back a little bit because that stuff never been washed, some of it. There'd be creepy crawlies in there. But I don't know what his looked like, but he was different. He was physically different. His diet was different. His strength was obvious. And missionally, he was different. He had a purpose that God has established from the very beginning. What was the purpose? God was judging the Philistines and removing their dominion over Israel. That was God's plan from the beginning. Who's going to accomplish that, Samson or God? God's going to accomplish it. Who's gonna, God going to use? Is God going to show up himself, pick up a stick, and go down and wipe out the Philistines? Is God going to do that? No. God's going to use a human. God throughout his word has used us, fallible human creatures, 
to go do his work. He's chosen us that are imperfect. He's chosen us that are, uh, fail, we fall, we trip, we stumble. God has chosen us. So guess what? You are uniquely qualified, like me, to do God's work. Because I'll guarantee you, we're all a little flawed. I'll guarantee you, we all trip and stumble a little bit. So don't excuse yourself and say, well, you know, God's got to pick a better person. No, he doesn't. He has his Samsons. He has his Jonas. He has his Moses. Moses was a murderer. He had murder on his rap sheet. And God said, I'm going to choose you to do an incredible thing. Lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. All that was what Samson was of God. Now, I want to take that apart a little bit because along comes Delilah. You might say it was his Waterloo, Delilah. And this is where Samson's self, his humanity meets his match. Uh, but first we get a little glimpse of his weakness and that's where we're going to start uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. So where did he go? Gaza. Who owns Gaza? You know where Gaza is today. It's in the news still. It's the Middle East. Okay. It's right on the coast over there. You can see it in a map in your Bible probably. But Gaza was a Philistine stronghold. So where did Samson go? To the camp of the enemy. Did Samson go there with a pile of tracks and signs to put up on the road to talk about Jesus? Why did Samson go to Gaza? <laughs> Sex? Yes. Good looking girls? Whatever it was. He went to the enemy stronghold. And this is the second time we're told in his short little story from chapter 14 to now that we're told that Samson saw something that caught his eye. Samson saw the harlot in Gaza and said, oh, mm, look at that. And he went into her. He dove into the snake pit. What do you expect to find, Samson? What are you thinking? You thought it was a, a missionary service? You thought you were going to go in and, and uh, what do they call it, evangelate? You're going to go do some evangelating? Maybe you'd win her over to Christ? Where you are where you shouldn't be in the first place? You're doing what you shouldn't be doing in the first place? And you think that's going to work out well for you? Twice now, he saw the Philistine gal that he wanted to make his wife. He sees this harlot. He's like, dude, I got to have this girl. The bottom line of what happened here, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but uh, he, he stays with her. And when they find out that he's there in her house and he's asleep again, and uh, they wait for him all night at the gate and they lock the gate. They said, when it's daylight, we're going to kill him. And he lay low. He's already low. He's spiritually low right now a little bit. But uh, till midnight he got up and he took, he took the city gates which were closed to keep him in. And he didn't just open the city gates. What he did is he jerked them out of the ground. Now there is a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of talk in Bible commentary about how big the gates were and how far he carried them. Some people have a distance of up to 20 miles taking them to the top of a hill that overlooks Gaza. Some people think there's a separate Gaza and it could be a different city named Gaza. We don't know. But we know that he didn't do something that was just open the gate and walk out. He literally took a gate that was somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 feet wide and the post that held it took it up on his shoulders and carried it for a distance and stood it up on top of a hill. Now what's beautiful about that is God is working through his situation, even his failure. Even though he's there and he has failed at his purpose and what we see is sin present, what happens is he destroys that. He, he, he fools the enemy's plan. And he walks up and puts a reminder for everybody by setting those gates up on a hill where everybody sees it. He puts a reminder for everybody to see that he conquered them. 
Now, Samson is a type here. A type is not the full measure that it examples. It's a shadow. And the shadow that Samson is is a shadow of Christ. There are marked differences because Samson did this in his sin. Christ in his perfection came, took our sin, destroyed sin, took it on a hill, put it on a cross, carried it himself, put it up for all to see outside the city, above the city, went through the tomb, was buried, stayed three days, and took the tombstone down and walked out. Victory over the enemy's plans. Conquering the grave. Conquering death. Taking away its victory. Taking away its sting. Christ did that. Samson, in a little way, gives us a little picture of what Christ would do. And there are some comparisons because Christ, who knew no sin, as Scripture says, became sin for us. He became the very object of sin, carrying what was strapped to him, that heavy burden, the gate of our bondage. Christ carried up to the cross and broke the chains of death and hell on us, on us, for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There is so much in God's word. It all points to Christ. Let me just put it that way. Is th there are points here we could just fly back and we buy it and we say, well, Samson, what? He's just a big, strong guy. He grabs these gates. He carries them. Wow, that's a cool story. That's great for the flannel graph. Let's put it up there and see. God is painting the picture of his redemption for us all the way from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation, the very last verse. God paints his love for us. He paints and pictures and points and shows us Christ. And he says, here's Christ. Here's what matters. Here's what you need to see. This is Christ. Look to him. Don't look to Samson. Don't want to be a Samson. Look to Christ. Samson's not going to save you. Why? We'll see in a little bit what happens to Samson. Mighty man of God. Consecrated to God's work. But he let some things happen in his life. He let some flaws in his life destroy his ability to work farther. He was destroyed. Samson was destroyed in the prime of his life. Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's throne and sits down at the right hand of the Father today. Christ was never destroyed. Death couldn't touch him. The grave couldn't decompose him. He stood up for us. He carried the gates for us. He carried the gates of hell, ripped from their hinges, for us great victory that we see in there the hill of Golgotha the hill the old rugged cross that we just sang about that is the gospel folks but now we meet something here that is his Waterloo verse 4 after it happened that he loved and I wonder what kind of love that was a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah and immediately that love was recognized by the Philistines and the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him, find out where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Five rulers of the Philistines, each of them giving 1,100 pieces of silver. She was coming out of this deal a rich woman. She had great cause to do what she would do and to sell herself. But we see Delilah. She has the moral constitution of a snake. She is sweet as honey. She is beautiful to behold, but she is deadly as poison. She, like Satan in the garden, the serpent that came to Eve, she, like Eve, the, the serpent promised Eve wonderful things. Oh, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He says, if you eat of that fruit that God said, don't go eat from the tree, the serpent told Eve, she said, you'll be like God. Promise something. I wonder what Delilah promised Samson. But she had the motivation. She had everything behind her to push him up. And unfortunately, he had already demonstrated his weakness. He had already demonstrated his humanness, his flaw, his failure, his enticement, his lust. He had already demonstrated that for us back with the harlot and with his Philistine wife. So there's the stories of the events that go to get the source of his strength from here. I'm not going to belabor those. But perhaps to him, it was a game. 
Perhaps to him it was like, oh, here she goes again. Let's see what happens. But you know what? I get another night sleeping with Delilah. You know, this will be fun. Is because I can we whip her up a story, but he never counted on Delilah's persistence to get to the heart of the matter. Delilah was persistent. Delilah, like Satan, Satan is not content to just walk away because he doesn't get you to fall in temptation once. Satan is going to keep working. Satan is going to present opportunities for you. And frankly, it's not just Satan we got to worry about. You know what else we got to worry about? The flesh. Us. Our flesh. Satan doesn't even have to get started half the time because we, in our flesh, our lust, our passions, our weakness, we feed that which can destroy us. And in Satan's case, in Samson's case, we see a picture of that here. We see him doing that very thing. He said, man, a night on the couch with Delilah, I can deal with her talking. I can handle her, no problem. She's just going to ask me over and over again this question. I'm not going to tell her. I'll just tell her a story and I get another night with Delilah. Verse 6, Delilah says to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies. And I can imagine. I mean, you know, maybe I got a vivid imagination, but I imagine old Delilah's leaning up against his chest and she's running her, his, her hand down his arm. My, look at that muscle. And she, boy, you're just so strong. You're just so incredibly strong, Samson. Where does that strength come from? And just, just plying him and just, just pampering him to try to get the answer to the question. So Samson starts off. He, he finally, okay, well, here you go. A little game. Let's play the game. Okay, well, you get seven fresh bowstrings of sinew that haven't dried yet. And what's interesting about uh, sinew and stuff that's used for bowstrings is when you first take it from the animal, um, and you have that cord and it's green, it's pliable, stretchable, but as it dries, it becomes extremely tough and tight and it actually snugs down. If you put it on tight in the beginning, green, it will cut off all the circulation and actually you can excise flesh that way. And um, so he tells her seven, you get seven fresh strings and you tie me up with those and that's it, I can't, I can't break that. He'd already broke a rope. He'd already killed a thousand Philistines. He'd already killed a lion. He'd already killed 30 dudes from Eshkelon. He caught 300 foxes barehanded, put them together, tied their tails, and put a torch on and let them go. Uh, but, you know, seven bowstrings is going to do it. She, she's like, okay, here we go. Seven bowstrings. He, she gets him to sleep. And um, the lords of the Philistines are hanging out. They actually brought her the bowstrings not yet dried and she ties him up. And I'm sure this was after a passionate uh, time period and he's asleep snoring over there and she whoosh, ties him up. And there's dudes waiting outside and she says to him in a real anxious voice, I'm sure, the Philistines are upon you. And he bolts out of sleep and bops the bowstrings and he kills the guys and it's all done. And uh, he broke them, and it says in my translation, New King James, it says he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. Pink, just gone. And the secret of his strength was not known. So what we have is a series of things that happen. He tells her something that's a lie. Um, she tries it. The dudes show up. It doesn't work. He wins. And then we go to verse 10 and she starts pouting. And I could just hear this coming out of her mouth. Samson, you mocked me. You lied to me. You told me that's not the truth. You don't love me. You don't love me anymore. I could just hear it coming out of her. This pouty face. You just tell me these lies. You don't love me. And so the game continues. Verse 11. Samson says, okay, I'll tell you what. It's, it's new ropes. It's new ropes. Well, she didn't check history because he had already been done this one time by the Judeans. She didn't check the history. So she goes, okay, cool. Back to sleep again. Another night of passion. Ties him up. And then she yells and the dudes come in and he just bink and the ropes will break. And uh, does it give us a description of how the ropes break? Uh, let's see. Uh, he broke them off his arms like a thread. The end of verse 12. Delilah, here comes the pouty face again. 
She said, until now, you just mocked me and you told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. So he comes up with another lie. Another night, another lie, another time. A little more passion. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So I don't know what kind of hairdo he's got, but he's got seven chunks that are coming off of his head. So I don't know if he had like one in the middle out the front. And, you know, imagine that. What do you do with seven big old pieces? How, how do you braid? Is there a braid that actually incorporates seven? That'd be kind of complicated. I've seen French braids. I've seen four strand braids. Uh, I don't know, but whatever he's got, he's got seven locks specifically of hair hanging off of his head. And he tells her, you weave that into the loom of the, the web of the loom, into the strings that are on the big loom and weave it in like you're knitting uh, on a machine. Then he says, that's the ticket. Now, has anybody ever uh, had a piece of thread in their hand and broke it? Everyone's done that, right? How strong is a piece of thread? Not very much at all. If you take a woven piece of fabric and you try to break it, how does it work then? It don't break. A lot of strength in numbers, right? And if you take like uh, one of those uh, Arabian carpets, you know, that are all hand woven, thousands of threads per inch, uh, woven back and forth, you, you can't tear those apart. They're incredibly strong. The curtain, the veil that hung in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place, uh, it's estimated in Jesus' day that that was almost a foot thick. And for someone to tear it apart would have required two teams of horses, eight to ten horses each, pulling in opposite direction to rent that veil apart. Well, when Jesus died, it rent from the top to the bottom. It wasn't man cutting it and pulling it apart from the bottom up. This is the power of God. It was God making another picture for us to understand that Jesus tore open the veil, making a way for us, sinful man, to approach a holy God, to make communion again, that man and God could be together in that communion that they had in the garden before sin entered the world. God paints pictures. God paints it over and over again and puts it here. But imagine the strength of that web, that loom, with all his hair woven through it, tied to big beams that would be cycled as they tighten the threads with the, I don't even know the names of the thing. There, there's the one part, and then there's the one that they pull down the shuttle that goes, you put back and forth, and that weaving process. Somehow, she gets him to sleep, and uh, on verse 14, she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you. He was dead asleep. I don't know if they were drinking too, but he can't drink wine. He can't drink that. So whatever it is, he's a sound sleeper. He awakes from his sleep. He pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. He just yanked it right out of the whole process, the machine. And here comes her pouty face again. She says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass. And here she sees, and I see this is the world's way. This is Satan's way of how this is done. It's, she's just a great example for us of how things are. Folks, it's not just one huge battle that you're going to fight in your life over the problems of your flesh or temptation. It's not one huge battle. It's going to be a daily, incremental, constant chipping away, poking, 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 a thousand darts of the devil thrown at you. That's why the armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, is super, super important. The fiery darts of the devil in and of themselves, a single dart, a single fiery dart is not going to kill you. It's just going to wound you. But thousands of darts over and over and over again will take their toll and they will bring you down. And in Samson's case with Delilah, that's exactly what happens. And it came to pass that she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Impatient to the point of death. It's like, if you don't shut up, I'm going to go crazy. Stop talking. He's like, if you do that one more time, we hear that in our world today a lot. I see that a lot in my job, unfortunately. 
is people whose words just drive each other crazy. But here he has now come to the point where whatever it is about her that lures him to this relationship, whatever it is about her, he's willing to trade his entire identity, his entire consecration to God. He's willing to trade it for her just to shut up, to keep her around. Think of that cost. It's just so constant, so on and on. Believer, that's why it's incredibly important to be armored, first of all, in God's word. It's incredibly important to keep your focus on Christ, keep your eyes on the prize of the mark of the high calling of God. Keep your eyes on the, on the race, on the finish line. Keep your eyes on Jesus because a thousand darts will get your attention. It got his attention. She just kept going on and on and on and on. And uh, he finally tells her. And this is a sad moment right here. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines. Said, come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. He actually opened up. She knew he had been honest because he told her no razor has ever been on my head for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. She lulled him to sleep. Verse 19, I just jumped down a little bit. I jumped around there. Hope you kept with me. And she called for a man and she had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Uh, then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Now this is an interesting part for me because I sleep pretty, uh, uh, I sleep well, but I wake up pretty quick. And uh, sometimes Lori will reach over and just touch me and I'll wake up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What's going on? And uh, Samson has fallen into such a stupor of sleep here that a dude comes in and shaves his head. They didn't have Oster clippers. I'm not sure what they used, but when you're using a straight edge razor to cut some hair off you or shave your beard, it's a process that it's pretty obvious that it's going on. He's so asleep that he doesn't even notice the razor is at work and he loses his hair. Does anybody think if, that his hair was his strength? That's what he told her. He said, you cut my hair, I lose my strength. Was that what it was? What really happened here? He traded away his consecration to God as a man of God. The thing that God had set him apart for, the God, thing that God had marked him with, the thing that God said, this is, you won't do this, don't cut your hair. It's not about hair. It's not about the length of his hair. That was a marker of his consecration. It was, it was a milestone for him of his consecration. Huge consequences. Here we go. And then the Philistines took him and they put out his eyes probably with uh, hot branding irons and they would just uh, hold the person down and bring the branding iron right up to the eyeball and the eyeball sears and the vitreous humor in there is, uh, leaks out and you no longer see everything's permanently gone. Put out his eyes. They might have just popped him out with a knife too. They could have just took him out. But now blind and weak, they bring him down to Gaza. And they bound him with bronze fetters and he became, became a grinder in the prison. He became a mule, an ox, chained to a post, tied to a horizontal grinding rocks. And he would just walk in circles all day long. They would grind their wheat. Imagine the fun that the Philistines had with that. I'm going to go get some Samson bread. I'm going to go get some of that bread that the that Israelite guy grinds down there. That guy that was the champion of God's people. How's he doing today? Let's go get some wheat that he ground up for us. Keep moving, Samson, and he can't see him. 
He probably barely walked because they got him fettered up. They got chains. Uh, have you ever closed your eyes and tried to walk without someone leading you? It's kind of funny to watch people, how they walk. Here's that bold guy that could just pick up gates of a city on his back and walk up a hill 20 miles or whatever the distance was and plant him on the hill, sit back and go, okay, oh, I might have got a little sweat there, you know? And now he can barely walk. He can't see. He's a taunt for the people of the Philistines. He's a trophy of their victory over the Israelites who have a God that they claim created the universe. Do you see what his cost was? Do you see the dishonor that he brought? Because he got his eyes off God. He got his eyes on his flesh. Delilah did her job. She did it pretty well. How far the mighty have fallen. So there's a great lesson to be learned. There is great strength in a man or a woman that is consecrated to God. You will be marked. Samson had hair. You may not have long hair. But there will be a sign of God's work and power through you when you are dedicated and your life is completely consecrated to God. You will be marked by God through his Holy Spirit, through Christ in you. But you will also be marked by the world. You will be marked for ridicule at your single-mindedness. You will be marked for destruction by the enemies of God. You will be marked for testing of your purpose and you will be marked for your faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 to 40 is quite interesting in this respect. By the way, one of the saddest things to see, we're in a time of winnowing, a time of throwing the grain up and the wind blows and the chaff goes away. And unfortunately, across America, there are pastors and churches that are changing their message away from God's word and the reality of the gospel and salvation through Jesus Christ alone to become a palatable message to a world that wants them in. They no longer stand and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They no longer stand, stand and preach God's word. They just make nice community message, social messages. It's sad to see, but that's an effect of judgment. That's a good effect of judgment is winnowing. I look around the deputies I work with and I say, I wonder which one will be the one to take me to the camps someday. I wonder which one will be the one to put a bullet in my head when I refuse to deny Christ. Because frankly, there's not a lot that separates us from being in that place. The government says that we do it, right? Government says it's okay. So yeah, you better do that. Doesn't mean what, it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. Doesn't matter what the founding fathers put in place. We can throw all that away for the safety of everyone. It's a sad thing to see what we've compromised already. We stand in a time of judgment. And when God judges, there's always a time of threshing. There's a time of winnowing. There's a time of sifting. There's a time of separation of sheeps and goats. It's important to remember. We must never forget the secret. Oh, I was going to read Hebrews. Man, I get all distracted. Excuse me. Okay. There's a lot in God's word to get distracted by, by the way. It's good distraction. Not bad. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Uh, there's hope for harlots, by the way. There is great hope for harlots. We talked about a harlot, chapter 16, uh, verse 1, where Samson went and he found a harlot, hung out with her. Uh, now we got a harlot who found the grace of God and was saved alone, her and her family, out of the city of Jericho from top the wall. She hid the spies. She believed God. She's married into the tribe of Israel, and her descendants are actually, uh, later on, you find in the genealogies. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. What more shall I say? 
for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and who? Who's that? Samson. Wow. Wait a second. Samson had a harlot problem. He had a lust problem. He gave in to temptation. He failed. He, he fell. Uh, he, he's wasted. He's garbage. He can't be used by God, right? No, God's purpose is being accomplished. And there's actually hope. And there's redemption. There's hope for harlots. There's hope for Samson. And here he is. Here's proof right here. Okay, let's move on. Uh, and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and dens of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The plan of God's salvation, the truth of his work in us, is they received that through Christ, through his work. We have the benefit of looking back. We can look at the Samsons. We can look at the stories of those in faith. We can look at those who lived their life never having seen, never having read of Christ on the cross, Christ through the tomb, Christ in victory, Christ ascending. We've never seen a miracle. We can read of that. They never saw that, and yet they held on in faith. They held on in faith. And if Samson's story ended just walking in circles blind with fettered feet, it would be a sad thing indeed. It says Samson's hair started to grow again. I check every morning. It, hadn't, it ain't working. Okay, it's not my fault. No one shaved it off and it wasn't Lori. She's not Delilah. So don't even get like thinking like that. Uh, go a little further here. Uh, well, no, I don't want to get to that yet just off the bat. We must never forget the secret of our strength. It's not the hair. That was just a sign. It's not the diet he had. That again was a sign. It's God. We have no strength apart from him against sin. Samson's lust was stronger than his human strength. Samson, Samson's passion, Samson's lust for women was stronger than his human strength. As imposing of a character as was, as good looking and strong or whatever he was, and uh, that scared all the Philistines every time they saw him, they'd say, go send more people. If you saw one guy coming after you, do you really get worried about that? I really don't. You know, I, I should sometimes because there's some crazy people out there as a deputy. I should get a little bit worried. But, uh, you know, we have some prevention tools and techniques and we pay attention. But if you see, if I see a thousand people coming my direction and they're all mad, it's time to beat feet. It's time to get in the car and leave. Don't stand there and yell at them. Don't tell them to sit down. Just, just go. Go back and get 999 more, come back, or maybe a thousand more and come back. Samson's lust, however, was stronger than his own human strength. There's a great danger. And I find in the razor of Samson, in the razor that cut his hair, I find some razors that sometimes we as believers allow into our life that remove our strength as the razor removed the symbol of Samson's strength. There's the razor of pride. It's sharp. It's silent. But it's a separation of God's presence and our dependence on him. Well, look what I did. Look how good I am. Look at, I'm not like all those other sinners. I'm not like all those people falling and failing. I'm in church every time. I sit in the front row. I sing on key. Pride 
is a breach of our consecration. Pride is a breach in the wall of our dedication to God. Pride is the problem from the very beginning. Lust of the eyes, Samson had it. Lust of the flesh, Samson had it. Pride of life. Look how strong I am. I'll tell you a couple fake stories. You get some bowstrings. Let me show you how I'll handle those. New ropes, I'll handle those. Web of the loom, I can handle that. But then the persistence, the, the devil don't play. Devil getting after it. Delilah kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going, kept going. And in our own strength, our pride will bring us to a point where we fall. Pride comes before a fall. Pride gets you swole, swole up. You can't move and you just flop. The razor of pride is dangerous. The razor of self-sufficiency is another razor. Separate us from our dependence on God. Is I don't need God. I can handle this one. I got it. And what we're doing is we're depending on the past accomplishment that God did in us. We forget the God did it part in us. We just count on the look what I did part. And we walk in, we go, I don't need to talk to God on this one. I got it. I got it. That's the bowstrings. Look, I popped those things. That's the new ropes. I've handled new ropes before. They're no big deal. Young lions, send them over. I'll tear them apart. Uh, no problem. Walking away with gates, I got it handled. I can do that. I've done that before. It's in my resume. Look at my vitam, you know, curriculae vitae, whatever it's in Latin. Look at my accomplishments in life. And that razor of self-sufficiency cuts silently, separates us from consecration to God. Separates us from dependence in him. And then there's that third that I think of is the razor of my purpose in life. It's that point at which I say, well, uh, hey, what about me? If I'm busy serving God all the time, how come he's not holding up his part? How come my life's not getting easier? How come none of these trials and tribulations are not going away? Why am I still fighting battles for God? Hey, where's the victory? He's getting the glory. How come I don't get any? When this is all over, what's going to happen to me? God, you know, I, when I can't preach anymore, what am I going to do? Sit on the porch? No one's going to come talk to me. What am I going to do? That pride, that razor of my purpose in life. Folks, apart from God, you got no purpose in life. He created us for his good pleasure. Apart from God, if you think your purpose is like, oh, I'm going to be the best person I can be. I'm going to be a good citizen of this government. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to do you. Those are all lofty, wonderful goals. But in eternity's picture, you think any of those hold water? Those are leaky buckets, people. You go up to God and you say, well, look what I did on earth. And God says, yeah, you got three good works. Now let's talk about the rest. It's not going to add up real well. Without Christ, you have nothing. Without salvation, you have no purpose in life. God created his, us for his good pleasure. Samson, when he was doing God's good pleasure, when he was in the power of God's mighty spirit, when Samson was overcoming the victory, overcoming the enemy, when Samson was doing that, it was because God was working through him, not because of him working for God. Our purpose Needs to always be focused on God. A lot of times that comes, that razor sneaks in and starts cutting away the sign, the signal of our strength, symbol of our strength. When we start thinking, what are people going to think of me? What are people going to think of me? You know, what about my friends? Consider Samson's disgrace. We already read it. They put out his eyeballs. They put him in fetters. They walked him down to Gaza he became a grinder. He had nothing going on. He became an object of pleasure for their God's victory. Look what they did. Now the lords of the Philistines got together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. Dagon was a fish God, so they're just offering a sacrifice to a fish God. And to rejoice. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. 
When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. So it happened when their hearts were merry, that is the word in the Old Testament for drunk, that they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. So now the man of God, the one consecrated for God's work, has suddenly become just an object of entertainment for the enemy. Folks, how many people who have served God in an awesome, powerful way have fallen and found their lives destroyed because they turned their eyes from God? And what does the world do when that happens? Do they gather around the guy and say, oh, man, let us help you heal. Let us help you get back on your feet. Let us help you, uh, let us point you to God so he can, uh, he can restore you. Is that what the world does? They go, oh, look at there. There's another one. There's another one that did this or did that. There's another one ran off with the secretary. There's another one that stole all the money. There's another one. They become an object of Dagon's worship. Come on, bring us Samson. Get him in here. They called for him. They stationed him between the pillars. And Samson said to the lad, and I love this part of the story because there's hope, there's redemption. And... Uh, in this and it, it's an awesome way to end this and we can see the faith that Samson had and that's recorded for us in Hebrews. Samson said to the lad who led him by the hand because he's blind he can't see let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. He feels the enemy's strength. He puts his hands on there. It says all the lords of the Philistines were there there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. And here comes the moment that really counts. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once. O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philippines, uh, Philistines, <laughs> Philippines, Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. And he braced himself against him, one on his right, one another on his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. Um, he had redemption, didn't he? God accomplished a purpose, didn't he? But what was the consequence? He died. he died. His physical death was the cost. His position that he was in. Could God have taken care of 3,000 Philistines some other way? Yeah, absolutely. If Samson hadn't sinned, if Samson hadn't given away his consecration and dedication to God, absolutely God could have fixed it and God could have took care of the Philistine problem. God didn't have a problem taking care of the Philistine problem. God was demonstrating his work through a fallible man to accomplish his work so that Israel would see God's hand in it. The enemy, the pillars they stood on was a fish God. It's ridiculous. Why do you want to worship a fish? You pull it out of the water, it dies. Can't walk on air. Can't walk on the ground. But they worship the fish God. This is the same God, by the way, when the Ark of the Covenant was near the temple of Dagon. This is the same fish God statue that fell down. And they picked it back up and it fell down. And the arms fell off and legs. And they said, get the Ark of the Covenant out of here. We're getting sick. We're getting tumors. Things are happening to us. That, that's kind of the situation that uh, inspired the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the whole scene with the Nazis that wanted that. It was all fiction, just fake made up. But that was the point, is that poor dude, that when it rocked on the cart, never should have been on a cart in the first place. When it rocked on the cart and the poor guy reached up to kind of steady the ark, uh, he died immediately. Because God said, you're not going to carry. It's my law. It's my picture. It's my demonstration. You're going to carry it the way I said. It's going to be on the back of the priest and it's going to walk in front of the people, and that's how it's going to move from place to place. You don't go sticking it on an ox cart. And they never should have been in that place. But Dagon, Dagon's had his day with God, and he's failed before, and he'll fail again. That's actually coming later. 
This is the first with Dagon. But this reminds me that Samson's redemption uh, was great. He ends up in the hall of faith, but what a cost. In his prime, he loses that opportunity. And that should be a reminder to us all is that while, while we have the opportunity to maintain our consecration and dedication to God, we need to do it. Why fall away and have to be restored at a later point and then carry the consequence of our action with us at that point? Why be in that place? Is if you've made a decision for Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's time to serve him now. It's not time to wait for something else to happen. I can tell you in the days ahead of us, uh, your faith needs to be in Jesus Christ alone. If your faith's in church, go away. Get out of here. It's not going to do you any good. If your faith is in, you know, uh, doing uh, good works, well, those will never save you. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That razor of pride. The razor of pride. Watch out for those razors, folks. Samson was in a stupor because of his own lust to the point that someone could actually shave his head of hair that had never been cut or touched off of his head ever. And yet he was so dead asleep, he was so stupefied that it, he allowed that to happen. Don't let that happen in your life. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Samson's story. Thank you.